The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Richard Watts, author of Entitlemania, How Not to Spoil Your Kids and What to Do If You Have. Uh, in his new book, Entitlemania, Richard explains how giving too much and too often, whether it's too much weekly allowance, a new car for graduation, or being too permissive, keeps our kids from developing the skills and confidence they need to take care of themselves. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here today, Richard. Hi, Catherine. How are you? Pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Your book really, uh, it's a hit, I have to say. I showed the book to colleagues, family, friends. Everybody was really interested in it, so I guess uh, the timing is right. Um, Entitled media, what is it, first of all? Let's g- g- give us a, a definition well, of what, for, yeah. First of all, the symptom of title mania is that state of mind that, that we seem to find in our kids where they believe that they should have anything that they want, but at the same time not believing they have to put any effort in to get it. And, so, uh, and, and I see this as, a, as an epidemic. I think it's, as, as you just said, it's one of these things that everybody seems to know about and everybody seems to be affected by, and it seems to be in most families, particularly in America, uh, and, and at all income levels, and yet uh, they really don't know what to call it, and, and they don't know what to do about it. And that's what the book in, in Entitle Mania hopes to do, is to give them some structure to what to do about it. Richard, you talk about, I mean, your actual, your experience uh, that uh, is to counsel, I guess, legal counsel, personal advisor, coach to the super wealthy, right? That's, that's how, that's what you do. You have an MBA from Harvard, very impressive. Uh, but so you work with very successful families, very wealthy families. And like you just said, though, this applies to all of us, not just these very wealthy families, but in America, probably it applies to also the middle class, middle class families as well. Yeah, what you find, Entitle Mania does go through all different uh, levels of, of income uh, families and whatnot. It really is something that, uh, that I recognize. The reason that it became so prevalent is that it's no different than almost my own personal laboratory uh, Entitle Mania brings together the, the 35 years that I've had watching uh, my families, which we've got quite a few of these, and we've seen hundreds of examples. Uh, and it began, it began to stand out uh, that this was something that wealth just did better at entitling people. Wealth just creates a lot more opportunity to entitle people. Uh, but that's on the material side. Uh, the other part of the entitlement process that I was able to see in all of these years is that there's a personal entitlement where parents, it's not about giving them money, it's about letting them up from the struggle and not allowing kids to begin to feel uh, their, their own sense of personal pride. All right, and this sort of ties into also helicopter parents, all of that, uh, I think, it, 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 at least in some way. So, uh, Richard, talk to us about some of the examples in the book uh, that you give us about the struggle. I mean, you have these super wealthy families, um, and you have very specific examples about how they don't allow their children to struggle, and, the, and, the, and it's really detrimental to their growth and their success. Um, so I like always to talk about sort of, I call them case histories, but give us examples of what you mean when you're talking about this whole concept of entitlemania. Well, there, there, like you say, there's so many examples in the book, and, you, and, and they're all applicable to different issues of entitlement. Uh, but but one that stands out to my mind that seems to read across the board to a lot of different different socioeconomic groups is uh, people get to a stage of when a child is uh, is very very young uh, there is this sense of trying to protect the child to such a degree that the focus on the child uh, becomes nothing more than an obsession and a codependency. Uh, to take care of that child and uh, and to do everything to take away 
any possibility that there could be injury, and it becomes an obsession. And you see that in the book we talk about the families now that have gone into the hyper-organic uh, type of, of uh, care for the kids, which I think is great. But when you see some of the parents' attitudes, it's not about the organics. If you could apply the organics, if you could apply the organic a crib, you know, that, that's something that I see in our families. They want to have an organic crib. Well, that instead of $200 is $1,400. And that's got trees that are grown without chemicals. And, and you think, well, here in the example in the book is, is that you've got, you know, a baby that's living in this organic crib on a $400 organic mattress. And yet, you know, they put it on the, on the ground unknowingly and the, the baby's sucking off the carpet. And so it's, it's really kind of a duality of, of protectiveness, but, uh, but that example of getting too focused on the actual child and, and what they're doing. Um, right, so what should they be doing? What should they not be doing? In that example, and I, I see it all the time uh, living here in New York City, but, uh, yeah, and you're right, yeah, they've got the organic crib and the organic clothes, and then they're in the train station or the airport on the floor sucking up the, the dirt. And so <laughs> what's the point, right? But the, ki- the babies don't know that. They don't, I mean, they don't have an, uh, an understanding of it. So we're talking about the parents' attitudes. Let's, you know, jump ahead a little bit. This idea that the parents are always trying to protect the kids and 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 not let them struggle on their own. So fast forward a little bit. Yeah. So so when you get to that stage, what you have to begin in the first part of the book is is divided into <clears throat> what to do about me to basically take a look and and introspect on yourself. And it talks about the fact that that really and truly, what's most important is that you begin to understand how you contribute to this because this is. 100% the parents' fault. Uh, when it comes to, uh, when it comes to the, the, the raising of the child, the entitlement that comes, it's a very slow process, but it really is the parents' fault. And so the first thing that needs to happen is that the, the parent uh, needs to take a look at themselves and understand what they're doing and what's happening in this process and, and begin to step back away and recognize certain very, very basic principles that are hard to swallow, but, you know, these kids are not going to be with you forever. Uh, there's even a bolder statement in the book about treating kids as guests in your home, uh, which means this is our home, and this is something that mom and dad have to have a priority here. They have to have their own lives, and the kids have got to fit into those lives. It can't be mom and dad, you know, hovering over top of these kids and beginning to take away any sense of, of, uh, of community between mom and dad and the relationship between them. So there's a, there's talk- a very difficult thing to turn around and look at yourself and recognize the codependency that you have before you even talk about the do's or the don'ts, which is the book is divided into those three sections of what to do and what not to do after you've looked at yourself. Yeah, and one of the things I want to say is, even if you feel, and you're listening, you feel like you've done it wrong, you still have time to rectify it, even when the kids are grown up and older. Uh, if you haven't been doing or following your advice, Richard's advice from the beginning, you can, you, you can change. There's an ability to change. Well, here's an example. Let's say your kid, and I, I know I was faced with that, with, I had th- raised three boys. It's, they need a, a car, and maybe they need a car to go back and forth to sports activities, music activities, whatever it is. And you want to buy them a good car, a safe car, of course, and that's not, you don't want them driving around in a second can car that's maybe more, not as safe, or you, you feel it's not as safe, but uh, so you buy him a, a an SUV or some kind of a, a more what you see as a safer car. Not a good thing to do, or how do you, you know, not do that? I mean, that's yeah. one example that yeah. You know that that's very true, and I and I think that's that's a good example, and that can be at all different levels, and and you can have whatever type of car all the way to a brand new BMW for a girl or boy that's sixteen, which I've seen many times. But it really, I'm not trying to create a situation here where there is a blanket restriction where, where everything, the, the rule of law here is don't buy your kids anything. But it does say, and one of the premises of the book is, is that everything that you give your child, you're taking something away. So the part of a responsible parent is really to look at this kind of like you're raising your next-door neighbor. You know, think of that, that scenario where, you know, you, you, you hear, well, Next door, their kids run amok and they're wild and they don't, they don't, uh, they're not respectful and this and that. And, and so you apply this attitude of, or you should apply this attitude of, 
what is it that I'm taking away when I give my child anything? And that means give them the answers to tests, give them the answers to their homework, give them a car, uh, give them, you know, give them even education in college. And you say, whoa, whoa, stop, stop, you know. Don't go there. And I say, that's okay. You can pay for their education. You can pay for college. But at least understand what it is. Be, be hands-on and proactive about what it is you're doing with that child when you are paying for these things. And in your example of a car, there's a lot of things you're taking away by even getting them the car, by buying the car. I don't care if it's a used car or a new car. There's a lot of things that you're taking away, and primarily what you're doing, if you look back, if our generation looks back to their own upbringing, the majority of them will say, I had to go get my own car, and I couldn't drive until I got what I got. And, and it's horrifying for us. You, you hear that. I've heard listeners hear that, and they go, oh, my gosh, that's out of bounds. I have to buy my kids something. They've got to drive something. But, but again, return back to where you were. And where you get the first car, and it's usually older, you paid for it, you figured out how to do it, you know, you, you got something that maybe ran and maybe didn't run, and maybe it broke down, and maybe the battery went bad, and maybe you couldn't drive for a month because you couldn't afford a new engine part to fix it. And in that process, you begin to gain in your own pride and self-esteem, and more importantly, the learning quotient of what it means to start from one place and connect to the next. And ultimately, by the time you get done, you finally get a new car. And maybe that comes your first new car when you're 30. Maybe it comes when you're 40. But I can tell you that when you get that new car, there is a pride when you drive around in it. And it doesn't have to be a fancy car. It can be any car that is in the succession of improvement of your own life, of what you did. And there's an incredible pride. So now apply that to you know, what happens with regard to these children is that mom and dad buy them a car. Immediately, there's the old rags and towels in the back of the car. There's the, you know, they don't take care of it. They're not brewing out. They're not washing it. And mom and dad begin to say, where's your pride? What's wrong with you? I, I mean, I gave you this. I bought you this. This is an incredible opportunity. You didn't have to do these other things. You could go on and play soccer and do your homework because I relieved you of the responsibility of buying a car, why don't you have the pride? And the book, one of the chapters is Pride is Not Transferable, and that's the concept that it is so hard to recognize that the only way you're going to give them a step-by-step understanding of how to get to the next level of their own personal self-worth and pride is to bite down hard on a piece of leather and watch them struggle and let them figure that out. And when they say, well, hey, Mom, why don't you give me the down payment? You say, you know, I'd love to do that, but I know that if you do it on your own somehow, you will be really proud of what you've got, and I'll be proud of you for having done it. It's a really tough thing to watch. Yeah, it is a tough thing to watch. I want to kind of switch over to another topic, too, because I think this is really important. You talk about in the book, like, kids shouldn't join you, or I don't know if you mean kids, you shouldn't force your kids and entice your kids to join a family business, for instance. And, you know, that kind of goes against what you hear about today, anyway, like, engage your kids in the family business, prepare them for the family business. Um, it, it, it's a positive thing to do, but but you say, no, don't do that. That's not something that's helpful to the children or the family. Can you explain that? Sure. And that's probably something that I have more experience in, in in terms of specifics than anything, because the majority of the clients that I have, have uh, managed for 35 years have been, fam- many of them family businesses, and some of them extraordinary family businesses that have grown really, really large. But what you find in almost every one, uh, and, and I do get pushback from this from people that are particularly the owners, the moms and dads push back on this because they believe their kids are happily vested in the family business. But in the process, what's happened is they took those children at 15 and said, you know, we have a job for you, and you can be an intern in the family business, and, uh, and we can... You know, we can devote your time to this. And normally internships, if you went out there, they wouldn't be paid. So, you know, if you got a good-paying internship, it would be $10 an hour. But, you know, because you're our, our son or daughter, we're going to give you $20 an hour. Isn't that great? And you can be part of this. And they, they take away, they pull that child out of what might be 
a completely different passion that they would follow if they were left to devise their own careers on their own, and they pull them into the family business. And dad, of course, the same thing as I talked about with the car, is incredibly proud, and mom's incredibly proud, and now you've got this family that appears to all be working together. But I've been inside that wheel for many, many, many years, and I know the struggles and the the arguments and the discontent that occurs with those kids down the road. And I have had probably the majority of them come to me at some point and say, basically, I wish they had left me alone. My, my wife, this is the in-law, is the one that hears about all this stuff. It interferes with my marriage because she is a uh, armchair witness and quarterback to what's going on, and, and continually counsels me that my sister's getting treated better than I am, or my brother is getting advanced faster than I am, or something is always unfair, and it disrupts a lot of the family process inside. And when it comes to the very end, one of my, one of my great, uh, great friends up in, uh, up in the Northeast actually said to me this last summer, and he's now been in the family business for 35 years, and his dad is in his 80s, and he loves his parents, And he said to me, you know, Rich, Dad, who still holds on to the stock, who is getting older and really and truly is getting kind of to be a curmudgeon and is utilizing that stock as a leash, I want to move on with my ideas, and I'm now getting to be 50. I should have had control when I was 40. I'm losing my opportunity to really make this company go. I've struggled with this for 25 years. And he said, my dad has put me in the un." enviable position of hoping that he dies. And I thought, God, and this is a guy that has the most wonderful family and wonderful brothers and sisters, but I hope I never would put myself in a position as a father to have a son or a daughter say to me, I really hope you die. Yeah, that's a horrific, that's not a good position to be in. Well, how would you put that in the context of, let's say, the Trumps, I mean, because they sort of, I'm th- as you're talking, I'm thinking of Donald Trump and family and his t- uh, t- his daughter and son-in-law moving into the White House, and this, it's a, a family business. Um, can you, is, is that what you're talking about? Well, I, I you know, I, 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 I'm very slow to venture into, into a world that I don't know. I don't know what his, how his operation runs. I know a lot of other famous people in their operations, but I don't know what his operation is. But the most successful that I have seen, and if his is like this, then it would be successful, and if it's not, it would not, is if basically all that the family offers is a job. And I have lectured around the country to some of the very biggest dynasty families, names you know that you would know that are giant families that have controlled huge businesses, and all they really offer their generations is a good job. And they don't give them a job at a level that is pre-selected. They give them a job at a level that they can handle. And so that's all done by an independent board. They decide whether that, that person can be CEO or whether that person needs to be working in the print shop. And if you want to work in the print shop at a 50 grand a, a year, that's great. And if you want to be CEO for half a million or a million dollars a year and you're capable, they make that decision. But I have also seen in the successful families, again, that you would recognize when that CEO gets a little flaky and he gets to be 50 and he all of a sudden decides he doesn't need to be in the armchair, you know, at 8.30 in the morning, the board removes him and they put someone else in. So I really don't know how Donald Trump and his, his family operate, but, uh, but I'm, I'm certain that there is a great deal of issue there to try to sort that all out. And if they're not proactive on that issue, then I would predict they will have the same disappointments in their families somewhere down the line as these other families that I have managed to. All right. So uh, now going on with um, well, this maybe has to do with well, well to do families, but not necessarily. Um, you advise uh, parents not to share their estate plans with their adult children. That, too, seems to be going against the trend. All I hear is like we don't, you know, p- parents tend not to tell their children how much money they have or how much they're going to leave them. And they really need to to tell them early on, really early on and prepare them for what's going to happen when they're no longer there. But you say, no, that's we shouldn't be doing that. Yeah, the, 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 there, you almost have to take two of my principles together. And again, these don't come from just sort of a stray thought process. This comes from a repetition of the supermajority 
of instances where there's problems. And Entitlemania talks about those types of instances where there are problems. And, and in this case, you have to take together both the chapter of saying how much is too much, which would at its, at its extreme say don't leave your kids anything, like Andrew Carnegie said, right? I would rather leave my son a curse than to leave him money. And one of the richest men in the world understood those problems, had seen the dynasty families come unscrewed, along with the idea of beginning to share the, the uh, plans that you have for your estate. What you will find is that as people get older, they think that somehow it's a good thing, and they're kind of proud. Guess what? I've amassed $800,000, and I want to tell you guys now, fine, you've never told you what I have. I want to tell you what I have because I'm so proud of it, and I kind of want to see you guys recognize my pride that I've amassed $800,000. There's four kids, and you're each going to get $200,000. I can't tell you the number of the hundreds of instances that I have witnessed and been part of that even small amounts of money like that begin to gain interest from at least one of the siblings. There's always a wild hair in the sibling group. And someone in that sibling group is going to get next to mom and dad and say, you know something, I have a little more interest in your health and and a a little aside and your wealth now, now that you're going to leave me $200,000. And what happens is, is they get close and they begin to help manage mom and dad, usually prematurely. And that's something that's not good for mom and dad. It's not good for the, for the child. And you begin to see a separation where the family begins to talk amongst itself. You know, so-and-so, Jimmy's up there. Now look at him. He's showing up around mom and dad all the time. Now mom passed away. Now dad's there. He's getting feeble. I think Jimmy's taking money or he's managing his... Now he's a signer on the checkbook. What the heck? Oh, now he's trustee. Now he's the executor. And all of a sudden you've got this thing where, you know, you have this family dispute going on. And in the great number of families that... uh, certainly at high wealth levels, but at low wealth levels too. Um, there is all kinds of problems that come from that, and the solution to that is is not to tell them to have someone independent of your family, even though this is against typical rules of estate planning, but have your CPA or attorney or a bonded trustee basically sell it all and write them a check. There's nothing's going to change anything different by telling them ahead of time, gee whiz, you're now going to have $100,000 coming down. You're going to have a million dollars coming down to you. Get ready for it. Try to get you know somehow schooled in hand managing more money than you've ever seen. It just doesn't happen. Oh, you have very unique solutions to these kinds of problems. I guess you know we only and you know it's obviously everyone needs to really go out and get this book. It's really a cool book. Entitled Mania: How Not. We only have about three minutes left. Entitled Mania: How Not to Spoil Your Kids and What to Do if You Have. Maybe just a little bit in these last couple of minutes. Let's say you haven't. You've done everything wrong, and your kid now is thirty-five years old, struggling maybe with. Uh, even drugs in the extreme, and you talk about that, drugs and alcohol and those kinds of things, how do you rectify it when, you know, you've, you haven't done the right kinds of things? It hasn't turned out well. Um, go to someone like yourself for counseling? Is, is, that, all we, is that what we can do? Or it isn't really you... about counseling. It's about action. Action. And, and in okay. Title Make... Mania, if you read this, you will see yeah. probably 20 or 30 different things that will point out one of them will be a trigger for you. But generally speaking, what you have to do is you've got to recognize that even if they're 50, what you're doing now at 70, if your kids are 50 or however that, however that age difference is, whatever you're doing now or then and, and now is the same. You're doing what you were doing before, and you say, no, 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 they were 20 when I did that. Now they're 50, my kids. They're still awful. They've got problems. They're drinkers. They're this. Well, if you leave the planet, they're on their own anyway. So if you leave them nothing, they're on their own anyway. And believe it or not, whether they wind up on the street or otherwise, you know, these are things that are going to happen. If you recognize what you're doing wrong, you basically stop enabling them. Even now, gives them the opportunity, and I've seen it many times. Even at 50, a client son of mine called me. He said, I'm sitting in my $300,000 Porsche at the top of a hill above the ocean where my house is, and I'm crying. And he calls me on the phone three weeks ago. He says, I'm crying. 
because mom has finally told me she's not going to give me the inheritance that I expected, and I've got to start growing up right now and figure out how to do this. It's incredible. So take action. It's not counseling. It's action, as you say. You have to take action, and you can do it at any time. Uh, Richard, website we can go to uh, for the book and for the work that you're doing so we can uh, follow you. Yeah, please, and, and thank you. It's, uh, it's uh, EntitleMania.com is, is the website. Uh, the book is available everywhere, so you can find that at Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and whatnot. And then you can follow me. I have little things I shoot out all the time at Rich Watts on Twitter, R-I-C-H-W-A-T-T-S. You can find me there. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Great talking to you. Catherine, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Joan Juliet Buck, first American female editor-in-chief of Paris Vogue. We're going to be talking about her new book, The Price of Illusion, a memoir. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here today, Joan. Thank you for having me on, Catherine. All right. Well, the title of the book, I guess, is what I want to start with, The, the Price <laughs> of Illusion. I mean, <laughs> what does that mean, obviously, and why did you choose that title for your memoir? Um, y- you know, in a way... In a way, I thought, why does my memoir need a title? Why can't it just be my name? And I was told uh, very politely that I wasn't really famous enough to go with a no-title memoir. (laughs) Um, Because having spent six years on the book, it was clear that the book was about a series of illusions by which I lived. And that... Each of them had a different price, and there is right, a price. Do- and yeah, All right, a series of illusions. You say so. Let's start. And it, it took six years to write the book. What before you wrote the book? I guess is I, I mean you. I mean obviously you had a very super glamorous job, uh, editor in chief of Paris Vogue. Um, 
first female editor-in-chief of Paris Vogue. Well, so. no, it, 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 the reason uh, that is said is that originally I was known as the first American ever to edit a French magazine. I see, um, okay. But there, there is one little detail. We have to be absolutely truthful here. Do you ever hear of the designer Mambochet who designed the Duchess of Windsor's clothes and who was a great haute couturier in the 1930s? No, I haven't. Oh, so Mambochet was this American guy called Maine Russo Bocher who worked in France in the 1920s and was briefly himself editor-in-chief of Paris Vogue. I think he did it for about six months in 1929. But to be absolutely accurate, you couldn't call me the first American ever. So suddenly I became the first female woman. I see. Okay. And, and in fact, the whole thing of editing French Vogue, I have been a writer. I was an actress as a child, but I've been a writer all my life, mainly for Condé Nast magazines. And the not quite seven years that I spent as editor-in-chief of the Vogue in Paris were kind of, they weren't really the culmination of my career. They were, it was a job I took because I was blocked on a novel. And I was offered the job because French was my first language. So, Joan, hmm? yeah, I mean, it took you six years to write this book. I guess then what was, then we're going to talk about the illusions, but what was the, what did, at what point did you decide, here? I need to write, I need to write my memoir? Why, at what point did you say, I mean, what was the motivation behind writing this book? Well, I had written uh, two novels in the 80s. I thought that fiction was a good way of telling the truth without upsetting anybody. And that, for me, actually did not turn out to be a good way of doing anything, because um, when I tried to write a third novel, I couldn't make anything else up. And my life has been so weird and complex and, uh, you know, glamorous, but also full of unaccountable tragedies. Uh, Three people who stayed with me in my apartment, my uncle's apartment in New York when I was a baby fashion assistant. The year I was 20, three people died. Unrelated deaths, but that absolutely failed me. So, you know, there's been a lot of drama, a lot of excitement in my life. So, um, there's also some really odd things. When I was let go from Paris Vogue, I was told to go to a rehab. Although I don't have any drug or alcohol problem and never did. And it was, there was some kind of plot that had it that I was some kind of addict. And because I'm a curious person, because I'm a writer, instead of saying, how dare you and I'll sue you, I thought, oh my God, how fascinating. I've just been watching fashion shows for almost seven years and now I'm going to meet real people who aren't hiding their pain. And I'll see what it's like behind the walls of one of those places that people are talking about. So, in your book, but the yeah, I just wanted the but the title of the book, "The Price of Illusion." What is the price? I, I want to kind of get back to that because you're talking uh, illusion. You know, implies that it's like made a lot of made up stories, a lot of smoke and mirrors, a lot of things that aren't true. And I know the fashion industry is kind of filled with uh, with that. But um, so there were movies. My father was a movie producer, and he turned Peter O'Toole into the greatest movie star in the world in the sixties. And a lot of that was smoke and mirrors and illusions. And, you know, it's like the story about the, uh, who, who was it who talks about the swan that glides along the surface of the lake so beautifully, but underneath its little feet are paddling furiously. Asleep. There is a price in keeping up illusion. There's a price in creating illusion. That strange, tinny feeling you get in your soul when you're in Los Angeles Um I think it's because of the all those illusions that are being kept up. Um, we're living in another world of illusion today, starting with social media, where everyone appears to be having far more exciting lives than they actually are. 
and yep. there is a price to be paid for not living in reality. Well, let's take it step by step with you. What the price of illusion or illusions, I guess we would say, right? During your lifetime, yeah. this glamorous life. I mean, oh, I mean, I'm not going to repeat all of it again, but I mean, an author, Vogue magazine, and, and you know, all of the but people the, that you were associated. The most important illusion, my father had been a very successful movie producer. I was a writer for Vogue and Vanity Fair and a couple of other, you know, New Yorker, Traveler, and I wasn't earning that much money. My father lost everything. And I wanted to make things better for my father. And when he was diagnosed uh, after an episode as bipolar, I had to take care of my parents. They weren't that old. I wasn't earning that much. I just wrote many, many, many more pieces than I usually would have. And that didn't really make their lives better. It helped them a bit. But then after my mother died, my father, uh, they had moved back to Los Angeles. They were in, you know, diminished circumstances. And my father was this lonely old guy driving a Subaru kind of erratically around Los Angeles. And I was the editor-in-chief of Paris Vogue. So I brought him over to Paris. I got him an apartment. I got him a lady to just hang out with him and somebody else to relay the person who hung out with him. And I was able to give very glamorous dinners where everyone would treat my father with respect and the attention that I thought he deserved. And I recreated the illusion around my father of success and riches. But it was so what illusion. was the price that you paid for that in doing so? The price that I paid for that in doing so was mm-hmm. that I stayed at Paris Vogue. I'm, I'm a writer. I invent things. I'm an improviser. I'm not a manager of people. I'm not an office person. I've barely ever worked in an office except when I was editing Vogue. The price that I paid was my time span as, as the, the American who comes in and changes Paris Vogue into something vital and exciting and interesting for everyone... The time span for that was probably four, five years maximum to do that, to do what I did, to almost double the circulation. But I stayed on. I paid the price. I stayed on because I wanted to keep up the illusion for my father. And instead of saying, gosh, I'm not that interested anymore, it's time to move on, I'd better move back to America and just become a writer again or, you know, go off on some other adventure. I stayed in Paris to keep up the illusion of riches and comfort and popularity and status for my father. I stayed too long, and then they had to get rid of me. And I lost my job in a a humiliating way. Mm Mm-hmm. So, do you think you would have been able to do it differently? I mean, I mean, in, in retrospect, I mean, you're saying you stayed too long. You shouldn't have done it. You created all of this well, no, glamour. No, I wouldn't. Have, I couldn't have done it differently because if I'd gone anywhere else, I would not have been able to keep up that illusion for my father. And it took me six years of writing this book to realize that, in fact, most of the things I did in my life, I did for my father. Without Where did that come from? Going back, let's say going back and way back in terms, like when you were a, a young girl. I mean, that connection, with that codependence with your father. Um, how did that start? My parents, my parents and my grandparents moved to Paris when I was three years old. They left Hollywood because the atmosphere had so soured during the McCarthy witch hunt. They were not communists, but they didn't. It was impossible to make any films, but really dumb films at that point. So they left. They come to Paris. The only person who can learn French is the toddler, because toddlers learn languages with absolutely no problem. So from the age of three and a half, I was translating for my mother, my father, my grandfather, and my grandmother. I was the one 
kind of in charge because I knew how to speak to the people, to the natives. <laughs> and <clears throat> I could speak to the French. I could translate back and forth. So I had this position of responsibility and a certain amount of power from a very, very young age. I couldn't even read or write yet when I was translating for everybody. And my father was just astonished that any child of his could speak such perfect French. To me, it was natural. I was a toddler. I was learning the language of the people you know, who I saw every day. And so that kind of mutual reliance started very early. When you say reliance, do you mean you needing his approval or thriving on his approval? or? Um, he needed me to talk to the French. And I loved the sense of responsibility and competence that being the translator gave me. It made me feel needed. It made me feel like I wasn't just, you know, a kid playing with some, I don't know, some toy by the coffee table. Because I'm, I'm an only child. I was always with the adults. And it was a, you know, it was a very, very close relationship between me and, and Dad. My mother, interestingly enough, went and took French lessons. She didn't need me so much. Was she ever jealous of your relationship with your father? I'm sure she was, but I was jealous of her relationship with him, too. Uh-huh. Um, no, I'm, 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 I'm sure she was. My mother was a great beauty. You see the photos in the book, how just astonishingly beautiful she was. And um, I did not grow up to be a beauty, and she would not reassure me about my looks. Um, the most she ever said was, you look like an interesting kook, which wasn't really what I wanted to hear. Mm-hmm. And what about your father? What did he have to say about your looks? He, um, well, I, you know, you don't ask you. I didn't ask my father. I did, I did ask him a lot if I looked like Audrey Hepburn, and he would say, you look like Maria Callas. And I really didn't want to look like Maria Callas. But, you know, that was what I was given. So there was a lot of stand up straight, keep your hair out of your eyes, don't wear prints and don't wear ruffles. My father had started as a photographer and he had a perfect eye. And my mother and I, um, he liked us to dress. Oh, my mother and me he liked us to dress in sort of austere navy blue or black clothes, very elegant, well-cut, not fussy, um, and keep our heads high and smile a lot. Because appearance in the world of movies, if the producer's family looks prosperous and well-dressed and is smiling a lot, that producer's probably doing really well. So the illusion started from the very beginning. I mean, you grew up, you're saying only, you're an only child in this really grown-up mm-hmm. world of illusions, this, the whole thing, the, the movie industry, and, and also just, I think, the, the times themselves in that particular era, don't, it was a time when you kept up appearances. I mean, just in, not just in the movie industry, but I just think in general. Oh, so. everywhere. I mean, you know, you, you got dressed up to take an airplane ride. You know, you wore little gloves. Um, I got, I'm 68. I remember when I would come home from certain parties in London or movie premieres, the first thing I did was wash my white kid gloves that I had worn that evening and hang them to dry because you had to wash white kid gloves immediately. We've come a long way, have we? (laughs) Well, the idea, it's funny, this whole, you know, there's a leisure where there's also, I mean, this, this whole idea of authenticity, um, I just got back from part of the tour, I was in Los Angeles in Florida, and I remembered that 
oh, like 15 years ago, if you went by the CAA, the agency, there were all these thrusting young men in immaculate dark suits running around in narrow ties, and they'd kind of spill out of there. And this time, everyone I saw um, was dressed as if returning from a medium-successful safari. Well, how would you you compare? Yeah, go ahead. Well, no, just, just everybody's... People seem to dress nowadays um, to reflect the effort they put into their lives rather than into their appearance. So they dress to show you that they've just been to the gym or they're going to the gym or, um, you know, that they're hauling a lot of boxes around. (laughs) But this whole uh, idea of the the title of your book, The Price of Illusion, because I I think Mm -hmm. today we we are paying the price of illusion perhaps, but as you say, like it's manifested it's in, in a different way not necessarily in the way we dress but in terms of what we do and you go on facebook and you look at everybody and they, it, it looks like they're having this perfect life and they're happy and on vacation and the family's together so uh and and, and nothing is wrong and then sometimes i have to not look at it because it makes me feel like hmm, my life isn't quite like that so <laughs> we're still <laughs> doing this p- Paying the price of illusion, I guess that's. Um, but it, it's it's manifested in, in in a different way in this generation, for instance. So, which generation? The generation right now, or the you know, I don't know what you'd say. Which generation? The millennials, the you know, um, the the younger generation. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you know people. Somebody, an, an English, um, English writer called Desmond Morris, who, used, who studied primates, um, I believe he wrote a book about human beings called The Naked Ape. So we are just naked apes who have to put clothes on to show who we are in the world and what we do. And, you know, that's already... When we start constructing persona around how we dress and how we present ourselves in the world, we start to drift, perhaps, from the authenticity that I prefer. But it's necessary. But, you know, there are things, um, all these girls, all these young women who have very, very long, perfectly blow-dried hair. And this is expensive to keep up. It's not particularly good for your hair. When I was a teenager in London, we used to iron our hair. So there is this kind of atavistic desire to have long, silky, flat hair. But it's complicated to keep up. It takes a lot of time. But it's part of an image that young women are presenting. Um, so much of what we do is to present an image. I'd like, and you know, I'd like to think that it's not true. And certainly, all my life, there's been this tension between the the beautiful unreal that was around me and the beautiful unreal that I knew how to invent because I'm really good at dress-ups and costume and decorating a place so it looks like something completely different. I'm good at making illusion, but I always had this thirst for authenticity. And when it comes to your own being in the morning when you're getting dressed as a woman, when you make that decision, oh, I'm going to put on some makeup, I'm going to gild the lily, or I'm going to improve nature... (laughs) I'm going to create an illusion that I'm, you know, prettier, younger, healthier, brighter, and have darker lashes. I think people need that to get by. And I think it's also politeness uh, to kind of show a slightly improved version of the naked ape that is you to the people around you. Don't you agree? I would agree. I, I would get. I, I, no, I do agree with you. We only have a few minutes left, so I want to just ask you: given all, given that, 
what would you say is the biggest lesson learned for that you that you've learned throughout sort of keeping up some of the keeping up necessary illusions or ones that you see as necessary and then others I that would, perhaps um, weren't when I came to the end of writing The Price of Illusion, which had so many drafts that I managed to have the glorious moment of coming to the end of writing that book probably somewhere between eight and twelve times. (laughs) And there is no better feeling than finishing a book or finishing a revision. Like, oh, yes. But when I came to the end of these various versions of of The Price of Illusion, I realized that I had done far too much in my life to please other people. And that if I had been a little more um, centered on what made me happy rather than what would please my father or what would cheer up the people around me, I might have had, I would have had a very different life. I don't know if I'd have had quite as many adventures. So it may have not been as exciting. It may have not taken as many risks, but uh, it, what it may have been more even, uh, more balanced, uh, less dramatic. Um, it, it, yes, I mean each of the um, each of the really exciting and also perilous things that I've done started with me saying, "Why not?" Uh, you know, I shouldn't have gone climbing on the roof of the that opera house in Paris in spike heels, but it was okay because I got help down. Yeah. And I thought it'd be interesting to edit a magazine, even though I hadn't worked in an office for 16 years or worn shoes during the day for 16 years or been to a fashion show for 16 years. <laughs> Well, on that note, we have one minute left, so I want to make sure... I mean, there's so much more, obviously, in, the, in your book... Um, and The Price of Illusion, a memoir, Joan Juliet Buck. So that you can buy it on Amazon, bookstores everywhere. Joan, give us a website we can go to because we do have to say goodbye and there is a lot more to, to talk oh, about. Oh, listen, you can go. I have a Facebook page called The Price of Illusion. Just go to The okay. Price of Illusion on Facebook and there's all the wonderful things that have been written about it. People are responding to the price of illusion with open hearts. Fantastic. Well, um, congratulations. price of illusion on Instagram and page price of illusion on Facebook. There it is on social Terrific. media. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank Joan you. Joan Juliet Buck, The Price of Illusion, a Thank memoir. You. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.